Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking to crime writers from around the world to see how their location and the location of their book affects their writing and the stories they tell. We start in Scandinavia with UC Adler Olsen, take a trip to India with Nikita Lalwani, stop over in Scotland with James Oswald, before finishing in the USA with Greg Hurwitz and Alex Grecian. So first up, we've got two crime world heavyweights, Barry Forshaw and UC Adler Olsen. Barry Forshaw is an absolute expert on crime writing, and his books include British Crime Writing and Encyclopedia, and The Rough Guide to Crime Fiction. UC Adler Olsen is the UK's new Scandinavian crime writing sensation. His Department Q series have topped the bestseller charts in Germany and Denmark, and earned him a Glass Key Award. In this short clip of their discussion, they talk about the success of Scandinavian writers, and particularly the rise of Danish crime writing. Yeah. Now, before we talk about the last book, Redemption, let's talk about you being a Dane. Yeah. Because in this country now, we're obsessed with Danishness. Yeah. The Brits love, because of the Danish crime TV, yeah. Danish writers like yourself. Yeah. It used to be the Swedes. Yeah. You seem to be knocking the Swedes off the top spot. You happy about that? Oh, yeah, I'm happy <laughs> about that. We certainly deserve it, I can tell you. You know, there are a lot of good Swedish writers. I mean, all of us, we are so grateful to the couple of Sjöval and Valur. They were the kings, really. I'm not. They were the kings and queens. We learn everything about dialogue, taking the topics of social stuff happening, politics and everything, mm -hmm. mixing it together and doing, I mean, short stories within everything. Nice yeah. characters like Gunnar Larsson and Beck. So they deserve that we really lie on our knees and say thank you, yes. because it's all started with the Swedes. As you're Swedes. not alone in saying, almost every writer I speak We know that. Henning Mankell, yourself. But you must realize <laughs> that my uh, Sjöval, she moved to Denmark. Uh -huh. And why? Because actually she's, in a, she's a Dane in disguise. <laughs> and you see that in the books. Now the Danes, I used to think that the Danes regard themselves as a blessed nation. They used to think that we have the best country in the world. Do Danes still think that? No, not at all. <laughs> but we have. But we have. We certainly have. I mean, we can't complain about everything, but something we can complain about. For instance, our government. Yes. Have you got the same political scandals that we have in Britain, for instance? And Unfortun Unfortunately not, because then we could get rid of them. <laughs> they are behaving a little too good. But they are so, I mean, what about all the other Danish? You presume they have the same problems with drugs and street violence, and you have all the same problems as Britain. Immigrants and the, the integration of immigrants in the country. That's the central character in your book, yeah. an immigrant. Yeah, an immigrant. And then in number five, it's very, very central that I have a small guy, mm. 15 years old, not even being a gypsy. He thought he was, but he wasn't. So uh, it's all about that. Mm -hmm. I was in Norway a month ago, and they, they complained about the gypsies there. And I said, you know what? Two years ago, it was snowing all over Europe. And in Britain, two centimeters. And everything stopped. Heathrow, everything stopped. The whole world stopped because <laughs> of the two centimeters. And you know what? Here in Norway, 
you have only two centimeters of problems with the gypsies. <laughs> so put yourself together. And in Denmark, we have four centimeters. Right. It's really nothing. Right. It's really nothing. And anyway, we feel that the problem with the immigrants is not the immigrants themselves, but the attitude. Yes. The attitude according to the immigrants is so bad. It's so like, in, 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 like in the Netherlands now. Do you now do you see yourself as a political writer? What do you say? I, I think I'd say I you were personally. Yeah, of course I am, <laughs> but you know, being a political writer very often means that you point your fingers. Yes. And you can do nothing with pointing fingers. Try it with your children. Mm. Mm. They are and, gone. And how much they listen. <laughs> they don't. They don't. But build a bridge of laugh, laughter mm. over, I mean, the gap of differences. Mm. Then we can laugh with, of each other, and that's fine. So talking about children, with the new book, Redemption, yeah. this starts, and the original title is Message in a Bottle, yeah. which is how everything starts mm -hmm. in the book. Mm -hmm. And that is two boys mm -hmm. being kidnapped. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us without giving too much away about that book? It's terrible starting this way. I hate books doing wrong to children, so they are not that young. They're not that young. They, they have, you know, they have their own characters, the two kids there. Um, what can I tell? You know, misuse of power. That's the topic of all my books. And it's in, th in this case, it's not about religion. Mm. You, you believe that. It's not about sex. It's about misusing of power. Mm. And it could be whatever. It could be uh, Microsoft, uh, Apple, a uh, company of whatever, where you can misuse your power within the organization. You can misuse it to the outside. Mm. But the funny thing about misuse is if you can turn the misuse to the organization itself, mm. then you are the strongest guy. And I'm good in judo, so I know that. You just tried to kill me with a knife. <laughs> I can show you. I won't attempt. <laughs> no, please don't. But what I mean to say is here that uh, the villain is doing that trick. Right. Now, that's difficult to talk about the villain in this book yeah. because you take your time getting to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he sure. turns out to be a pretty nasty piece He's of work. He's a pretty nasty character and he was treated pretty nasty when he was a child. And I'm not trying to find any excuse for him, but I saw it so many times in the medicine hospital. It started there, you know. Mm. My father said to me, you see, you have to realize if you're seeing the guys here in this, in this screaming cage, almost naked, and this was in 56, so mm. it was like that before the psychopharmaca. Please realize that they were like you when they were kids, mm. more or less. Mm. So they are like human beings, and therefore I could feel pity for them. So you have to put yourself, when you're writing villains, into the mind of the Absolutely. villain? Absolutely. And do you think a villain feels that he's a nasty guy when he looks upon no. himself in the mirror no. in the morning? No, he can explain why. Yeah. He's doing he it because he, he has to do it in his own... He can justify whatever he's doing, yeah. yeah. And the book also has, it's kind of, I hate, hope you aren't maybe saying this, it's slightly Dan Brown-like in the sense that you've got a code that needs to be cracked. Mm -hmm. There is the message in the bottle, mm -hmm. which is unreadable. Mm -hmm. So bit by bit, mm -hmm. we are given bits of a puzzle, but all the time the reader is thinking, what about those boys? Mm -hmm. We never stop thinking there are two human beings. Yes. And actually, we're a bit impatient with Karl Merck, oh, aren't yeah. we? Saying, come on, yeah, sure, pull sure, your finger come on, out. Come on. come on, there are two boys. And that's a thriller trick. Yes. Let's go to the end. Let's turn the pages <laughs> in a hurry. Which you should never do. 
No. You should never look at the end. No, <laughs> no, please don't. Please don't. That was Barry Forshaw and UC Adler Olsen talking about UC's crime novels. The full interview will be hosted on YouTube in a few weeks' time. So why not subscribe to the Penguin Books UK YouTube channel at www.youtube.com slash penguinbooks and watch it as soon as it's live. Next, we have an interview with Nikita Lalwani. Nikita was born in Rajasthan and raised in Cardiff. And as such, she's chosen to set her novel, The Village, in a village modelled on a real-life open prison in India. In this interview with Victoria Lyons, Nikita starts off by explaining what The Village is about. The village is set in an open prison in India, which is also a village. It's modelled on a real-life place that I first visited 15 years ago, called Sanganer in Rajasthan, in, north of, in the north of India. And basically this is quite an extraordinary place where about 100 inmates live with their families. Everyone there has killed someone. Everybody's in for murder. And everyone can come and go as they please. And in the past 50 years, no one's reoffended, and hardly anyone's run away, say two or three people in 50 years. And you said your inspiration was from this real-life open prison. Did you go there, or how did you hear about this place? Well, I first went there um, as a, an employee of the BBC. Hmm. When um, I was starting out, I, I worked at the BBC for a few years trying to direct uh, TV programmes, and this was when low-budget filming had just come into play yeah. so it was small cameras dv dv cameras had just started and um, i first went there just to make a short item for late night bbc2 mm. which was about eight minutes long and no one had heard of this place and it's still pretty much hidden yeah and i ended up working with penal reform international to try and give it a larger profile and i wanted it to be a film really for many years and then i realized the way to write about it was to do it through fiction yeah. rather than non-fiction. Yeah, absolutely. So can you tell us more about this this prison and these murderers? Well, it's interesting. It's a very calm place. And um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an almost idyllic place. Children are flying kites there. They go to school in the local school, which is they have to cross a river to get to. It's modelled on the principles of Mahatma Gandhi, where the village is self-reliant. People are making their own clothes, yeah. weaving their own cotton. Um, running their own businesses locally. And uh, so when I went there as part of the BBC, I was young and liberal and naive, not having thought through what it meant. And I went there, and it was such a beautiful place, and we were all seduced by it. Yeah. And then I came away and I thought, what does it mean, this place? Because for every family that's there, um, there's a family who's lost someone. And yet nobody reoffends and hardly anyone's running away. Yeah. So it works in terms of rehabilitation. It's an incredible place. Yeah, and you definitely get that impression from the book that, you know, you wonder why hasn't the Western world sort of adopted these kind of penal reforms? I mean, what is your opinion on the penal system here in England? Well, it's interesting because um, rehabilitation is a, a hot topic at the moment because mental illness is at an all-time high in prison. You know, the numbers when they go in are uncertain, but by the time they come out, 70% have got some form of mental illness. So the discussion is a very important one um, about, you know, what are, what are our prisons doing? What does it mean to have solitary confinement? What does it mean to have confinement in the traditional sense? The prison in India, it's run as a village, and it's based on the idea that if you're reunited with your family, 
whether you want to be or not, you have a sense of responsibility. You have a need to provide for them. You have a need to work. And the need and the ability to work and to feel valuable and to be self-sustaining is quite an important one when it comes to rehabilitation. Yeah, and there's something very humane about it that people are allowed to continue being humans and live and feel this responsibility, which you don't get in sort of the Western world prisons. Just to move slightly onto a different part of the book, another aspect of it was the question around identity because the protagonist is an Indian girl. And so back in India, she speaks Hindi and she can talk with the locals. And yet she doesn't feel like she belongs anywhere. She's not English, but then she goes to India and they'd say she can't be Indian. The color of her skin does not change the fact that she is actually English. You yourself sort of were born in Rajasthan but grew up in Wales. Is this how you felt growing up or have sort of experienced in your own life? I think it's interesting when you try and place a version of yourself into your book. I was reading some V.S. Nepal the other day, uh, an essay called Prologue to an Autobiography, in which he talks about the difficulties of being authentic and how he always has ended up putting a version of himself into his fiction and messing around with it so that it can fulfil Right. his ends yeah. you know f- fulfill his aims his objectives yeah. and i suppose that's the that's the same with ray the, the protagonist the version of me um definitely the issues of identity are at play mm. the sense of belonging what does it mean to be true to one culture and not to another ray enters that world because she's indian and because she can speak the language and there's this idea that the language can protect her and make her a good person the fact that well she speaks hindi She speaks Hindi like the locals. She doesn't use a hierarchical form of English, so she must be a good person. But that's not enough, as the book shows. Language is a weapon in the book and one that can be manipulated like most other things. Yeah. And also your books, you know, being from Rajasthan, your interest is obviously in India and you have written other books. You know, your first book, Gifted, about a talented 14-year-old girl called Rumi. You know, would, do you think you'll always sort of write about India and sort of explore this to show the Western world about another side of India which we don't see? Well, I think it's, a, it's definitely a theme. Ethnicity and India in particular terms, they're, they're definitely themes that will always be there. I mean, my next novel that I'm working on is set in multicultural London. And so we're tackling people from all kinds of different backgrounds. Um, I am interested in what it means to be British right now, um, as you know, which is there in the village, um, as well as it being set in India. It's a British film crew who go there, a British-Asian yes. main character who's female. Um, but I'm also interested in what it means to be a woman in the world, and I was looking back at the village and didn't realise when I was writing it that there's strong narratives to do with women and how they work in the prison and how Ray is as a woman and her identity in relation to men. All those things are there. So the the questions that are in the village haunted me for about a decade. Mm -hmm. I think they're genuinely interesting. And I am, you know, always trying to write books, I think, in answer to the big questions that we can't really answer succinctly and in a line. And hopefully the atmosphere of the book and the way the characters work will continue that for the reader I think there are a lot of big questions that are quite relevant now That was Nikita Lalwani talking to us about her latest book The Village which is out now
We now have an extract from the audiobook edition of The Book of Souls by James Oswald, author of the Detective Inspector McLean series of crime novels set in Scotland. In this extract, we're introduced to the darker, dingier streets of Edinburgh. Ah, Jesus! Is that a rat? Keep it down, Constable. But Sarge, it crawled over my foot. Must have been the size of a bloody badger. I don't care if it was as big as my shiny arse. Keep it quiet until we get the signal. A grumbling silence fell over the dark street as the small group of police officers crouched among uncollected rubbish sacks outside a lifeless tenement. The constant quiet roar of the city around them underlined the stillness, the insufficient glow of the one functional streetlight casting everything in twilight shadow. Early morning, and you could rely on the natives of this part of town to be asleep or stoned out of sensibility. Two clicks on an airwave set, then a tinny voice through an earpiece. All clear round the back. You're good to go. The bodies shuffled around, hemmed in by the rubbish on either side. OK, people. On my mark. Three, two, one. A crash of splintering wood split the air, followed closely by a scream. Ah! Bastard wasn't even locked. Then, Jesus Christ, there's shit all over the floor! Detective Inspector Anthony McLean sighed and switched on his torch. In front of him, he could just make out the black-clad figure of P.C. Jones struggling to extricate himself from a pile of rubbish sacks inside the tenement hallway. Did they not teach you in Tully Allen to check that first? He pushed past the struggling constable and into the dank building, sniffing the air and trying not to gag. Rotting garbage mixed with stale piss and mould the favoured aroma of the Edinburgh slum. It wasn't usually this right, though, and that didn't bode well for why he was here. Bob, you take the ground floor. Jones, help him. McLean turned to the final member of their party, a baby-faced young detective constable who'd been unlucky enough to be in the canteen at the station an hour earlier, looking like he had nothing better to do. That's what you got for being keen. Come on, then, McBride. Let's see if there's anything here worth breaking down an unlocked door for. There were three stories to the tenement, two tiny flats on each floor. None of the doors were locked, and the graffiti liberally scrawled over every available surface was at least two generations of squatter out of date. McLean stepped carefully from room to room, the beam of his torchlight playing over broken furniture, ripped-out electrical fittings and the occasional dead rat. D.C. McBride never left his side, hovering like an obedient Labrador, almost too close for comfort. Or maybe it was just that he didn't want to brush up against anything. Couldn't blame him, really. The smell of the place would take weeks to wash out. Looks like yet another complete bloody waste of time, McLean said as they left the last flat and stood on the landing at the top of the stairs. All the glass had long since gone from the window looking out over the gardens behind, at least that meant a cold wind could blow away the worst of the smell. Um, why did we come here, sir? The question choked in McBride's throat, as if he had tried to stop himself asking it at the last minute. That's a very good question, Constable. McLean shone his torch down into the empty stairwell, then up at the ceiling with its high-angle roofline and reinforced glass lightwell. That was out of reach of the vandals 
and tough enough to withstand thrown missiles, but even so, a couple of panes were crazed and sagging. An informant, a snitch, what is it they like to call them these days? A covert human intelligence source, he made little bunny-ear inverted commas with his fingers, bouncing the light from his torch up and down as he did. Bugger that. Mine's a stoner called Izzy, and he's a useless tosser. Spun me a load of old crap just to get me out of his hair, I've no doubt. Told me this place was used as a distribution hub. My own fault for believing him, I guess. More lights flickering in the darkness downstairs were Detective Sergeant Bob Laird and Police Constable Taffy Jones stumbling through the rubbish sacks in the entrance hall. If they'd found anything, they'd have shouted. So it looked like the whole episode was a complete waste of time. Just like every other bloody raid. Wonderful. Dagwood was going to be so pleased. Come on, then. It's probably best if we don't make Grumpy Bob climb all the way up here. Let's get back to the nice warm canteen. McLean set off down the stairs, only realising he wasn't being followed when he was halfway to the next floor. He looked back and saw McBride's torch pointed at a space above the fanlight over one of the flat doors. A small hatch gave entry to the building's loft space. It looked almost completely unremarkable, except for the shiny new padlock hasp screwed into it. "'Do you think there might be something up there, sir?' McBride asked as McLean rejoined him on the landing. Only one way to find out. Give us a leg up. McLean shoved his torch in his mouth, then trod gently in the cup made by the constable's interlocked fingers. There was nothing to hold on to except a small lip below the hatch, and he had to stretch his other leg out to the wobbly banister before he could reach up with one hand and unclip the hasp. It gleamed where until recently a padlock had swung, Hold steady, McLean pushed against the hatch. It resisted slightly, then swung in on well-used hinges. Beyond was a different darkness, and a sweet musk quite at odds with the rank odour wafting up from below. He swung his head around until his torch pointed in through the hatchway, seeing aluminium foil over the rafters, low wooden benches, fluorescent lighting. I can't hold on much longer, sir. McBride's voice shook with the effort of holding twelve stone of Detective Inspector. Well, maybe thirteen. McLean transferred as much of his weight as he dared to the banister, then swung around and dropped back down to the stone landing. The constable looked at him with a worried expression, as if expecting to be shouted at for his weakness. McLean just smiled. Get on your airwave set, he said. I think we're going to need a SOC team here as soon as possible. That was an extract from the Book of Souls audiobook by James Oswald. The first book in the Detective Inspector McLean series, Natural Causes, is also available now as a paperback, ebook, or downloadable audiobook. Now for two American authors, Alex Grecian and Greg Hurwitz, who marketing manager Tim Broughton managed to interview during their visit to the UK for the annual Harrogate Festival. First up, we have Alex Grecian from Kansas City, who has set his crime novels in Victorian London. Here, he explains how he came about writing about local British communities from across the pond. I think I, uh, I, I might sort of cheat a little bit, uh, because while uh, Victorian London is far away from me uh, in terms of location, it's also far away in terms of time. And so... 
um, it's it's almost uh, its own separate country uh, from from modern day London sure. in a way, and 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 I have a little more leeway to make things up as long as I get the the basic flavor right and I get the actual history um, down in an authentic way. Um, the flavor of the people, of course, the 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 atmosphere of of the place is is probably still similar. Um, but again, by, by setting it in the past, I, I can sort of step around some of the, uh, some of the expectations sure. that are there. But yeah, um, in terms of uh, setting it so far away from myself, I, I do have to do a lot of research and I do have to make sure that the, the things that people can still verify and the things that people are living through are accurate or as accurate as I can possibly make them. Sure. So, uh, I mean, I guess um, uh, in a global internet-connected world, that must make things a, a lot easier, <laughs> I guess. Yes, that makes things a lot easier. But, uh, of course, I can't rely on Wikipedia. Sure. Um, <laughs> so you still you still absolutely see the value in visiting the UK and, oh, uh, and yeah. experiencing the, the city and country firsthand. Absolutely. Um, and, and what I find is that uh, history books are, are very dry. And what I like to do is go back and find diaries of people who lived... Sure through the time and and, and, in the place and uh, newspapers and get real firsthand accounts of day-to-day life. And and that imparts a lot of the, the, what I call the flavor of a place, more than any sort of comprehensive history book could do. Of course, I need those as a touch point to sort of place those diaries and those newspaper accounts, but uh, they're more of a, a background. And, and the diaries are the more immediate research that, that's much more helpful than anything else. And how aware are um, people in the States of London, of that area? Area, For example, you know, are they, um, has everyone in the States heard of Jack the Ripper? <laughs> I think he's one of your best exports. He's, uh, <laughs> he's one of your most famous celebrities. <laughs> um, yes, uh, we're, we're, pretty taken with uh, Jack the Ripper. Um, you may be sick of him over here, but we still find him fascinating. Um, he's, uh, you know, he's sort of the dark equivalent of Sherlock Holmes, sure. who is right now experiencing a little bit of a boom yeah. in his own... Uh, <laughs> That's a Robert Downey Jr. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, as the title suggests, your next book is set in the black country. Um, how did you settle upon this location? I mean, what was it about the communities of uh, Dudley and West Bromwich which particularly appealed to you? Well, uh, while I was researching London, um, somebody uh, mentioned being somebody in one of the diaries that I was reading mentioned uh, having a relative in the Black Country, and I immediately seized upon that as as a great title for a book and a, a great sounding place, a very dramatic sounding place, um, which. It may not be over here. It, it may be the equivalent of Nebraska or, or something, <laughs> you know, which would sound just like a place uh, to me. But uh, it just suggested a, a sort of a, a darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, having seized on that, I, I, I began researching that area, already knowing I wanted to somehow set a book there. And uh, fortunately, um, the, the area is just so ripe for for a thriller it's just perfect really um because you really you really did have houses sinking into 
coal tunnels, um, okay. you know, and and the furnaces and the the, the woods and I mean everything is there to to create a thriller. It's a really rich atmosphere oh, and a stage for <laughs> such a setting. Yeah, it's a perfect background. I can say with absolute authority that uh, the the whole region has completely changed. Uh, now, <laughs> uh, um, yeah, the same thing wouldn't work in a contemporary setting, I don't think. No, no, I'm sure. But that's, again, another advantage uh, of being able to work historically. I can pick and choose retroactively sure. where is going to work and when is going to work. Um, and you're over in the UK to research book three. Does that have a title yet? Yes, it's called The Devil's Workshop. Okay. And c- what should we expect? Should we expect a return to London? or? Um... Yes, yes. We uh, yeah. There's a return of a lot, um, including uh, a certain Jack that you mentioned earlier. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I very much, I, I took my main characters away from London for the second book so that I could sort of put them in a pressure cooker and um, force them to bond with each other right. more quickly um, because I knew that the events of the third book, which I already sort of had planned in my head, yeah. were going to be very intense. And I wanted them to already be able to trust each other and rely on each other. And so I, I put them through a lot in the black country so that they'll be ready for the devil's workshop, if, right. if that makes sense. Yeah, so being in an alien environment altogether kind of forces them to communicate a lot quicker than they would have otherwise. Right, right. If they were just cogs in the murder squad uh, machinery, um, I, I don't think they would have bonded quite as quickly. They, they really have to rely on each other in the black country or, or honestly, they'll die. And, and maybe they do. I don't want to give away the end. And <laughs> okay. um, just thinking about future locations, are you very much tied to Britain? Do you feel that um, the rest of your writing career is going to be kind of <laughs> set here? Or would you consider, obviously, Scandinavian crime has um, been incredibly popular over the last 10 years or so. Uh, would you consider Europe back back in the States? What's what's the plan? I think I'll stay away from uh, the Scandinavian. Um, I, think, I think other people have uh, covered <laughs> that pretty well. Um, but yeah, uh, while I do intend or, or hope at least to write uh, as many Murder Squad books as people will read, um, I'd, I'd like to sort of punctuate those with uh, thrillers set a little closer to home. Um, I think I could probably write those a little faster. There's a little less research. Um, sure. A contemporary uh, crime novel set in Kansas City would be <laughs> a little bit easier That'd to be write. A breeze. Yeah. <laughs> Alex Grecian, author of The Yard, talking about his latest book, The Black Country, which is out on 12th of September. Finally, our second American author, Greg Hurwitz, talks to Tim about his work and his most recent book, Tell No Lies, which is set in San Francisco. Living in San Francisco himself, we find out whether the familiarity of San Francisco makes the city his location of choice, or whether there is, in fact, something more to this decision. It took a long time for me living in Los Angeles to write a book set in Los Angeles because the crime tradition there is so rich and varied, from Raymond Chandler to Michael Conley, James Elroy. I mean, the list is endless. Um, And I've never written a book that took place in the city of my birth, which is San Francisco, which has an equally rich crime tradition. And it was really funny because I was re- I was really drawn to the notion. I was drawn to the plot separately, and I realized that the two dovetailed really perfectly. Um, this story could not take place in Los Angeles. It deals with class and race in a way that's very different, um, and the story just functions very differently. And so it was it was a real homecoming of sorts for me to go back to San Francisco, 
as an adult and as a novelist and to really do research. And the story that I had in mind really needed to take place in this sort of fog-shrouded buildings and in the steep streets and dark alleys of San Francisco. It's just exactly where it was. And this book is very much of the city. Um, And you said uh, that it couldn't take place in L.A. because of the difference in attitude to uh, race and the culture there. What, what do you see as being the big differences? Well, in some ways, I think cities? in a way, it's more it's more in the differences with class. At L.A., okay. one of the things that that I personally love so much about Los Angeles is the only price of entry to anything is if you're interesting. Um, right. they're, they're, and San Francisco has a much more embedded class structure. People say it's the most East Coast city on the West Coast. It's a city of 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 real opposites. And so at the center of the story, my main character is something of an opposite himself. He grew up, you know, the, the, in an incredibly wealthy, old school, moneyed, moneyed family. And he's decided at a certain point in his life to give it all up. And he has decided to become a counselor and specifically a counselor to violent offenders who have just been released from prison. Mm-hmm. And so three times a week, he sits in a room with former armed robbers and rapists and violent people and tries to figure out how to counsel them. And it's sort of this flight between, you know, it's the most liberal city um, probably in the nation. And yet it's also one of the most conservative social structures, at least within California. And so there's all these interesting opposites. And Daniel Brasher finds himself, having lived in one world, has moved into another world and is interfacing with a very different part of the city. So would would it be fair to say that uh, given your writing style. I mean, looking at someone like uh, Ian Rankin or our own uh, James Oswald, um, they write thrillers set in Edinburgh. Uh, They probably know before they start writing that the thriller is going to be set in Edinburgh and then they base a plot that would work within the confines of that city. Are are you able to write your plot and then locate it to where it would be most suitable? Well, just it's odd because it happened organically and for some reason, I had a draw to tell the story in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't any deeper than that. It wasn't like I had a thematic forethought. But sure. when I got into and started writing it, the more that I realized that all the plots and the clues and the personalities and the nuances within the, the police department and even the nature of the thriller and the motivations and the plots were so impeccably suited to the city that I think that must have been a subconscious draw. You've been over in the UK for uh, a week now. Can you see yourself and your books gravitating over to um, a thriller set in in the UK? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, I, I lived I lived here for a year, and I have a real affinity for it here. Um, you know, so it's funny. I mean, the one temptation I have is I think I think you guys have the best slang by a mile. <laughs> it's it's so fun. The, the language and the language play here, I think, is unparalleled. Um, and so that's always been a point of interest is to write a character that way. But it, it would take quite a bit more. You have to really know the guts of a place to write about it, sure. you know, like I mentioned. And, and San Francisco, I think, was in my blood. But I really went up there and, and took care to walk around and really get to know it. Sure. The same way with L.A., you know, and those are my two main locations that I've set that I've that I've set stories. And with, you know, Los Angeles, for instance, when you really know a city – in LA, I don't want to just write about Muscle Beach and the Hollywood sign. You want to find all those things that are the hallmarks of a city that's where, where you're sort of peeling back the veneer of it and showing people how it functions. And for me, it's very much the, the, the city's function so differently. 
And so, you know, I, I think that with I have an understanding of of the UK and of cities here, but I would want to have a much stronger grasp before I started to really deal in, in intricacies. Sure. So I understand that uh, you're in the process of writing your next book, Don't Look Back, which is set in Mexico. Did you have to spend a lot of time in Mexico? I imagine that was quite a tough gig. Yeah, well, I went down and spent two weeks in the jungles. And uh, it's funny. I, I started, I did a day in Mexico City. Mexico is not the safest that it's been. So sure. my trip, especially being, I mean, I was really out in the hardcore jungles of Oaxaca. Um, and so it was met with some uh, trepidation by friends and family. Sure. Presumably um, you had a guide with you? or, or I had you... I had different guides. Okay. I did, I did you know, I did some white water rafting on a, on a class four rapid. I did, you know, a lot of hikes through ruins. There's a lot of snakes. There's a lot of, you know, uh, you, you have to be a bit careful. And in Mexico City in particular, I had my head on a swivel. Like, you know, you want to... Sure. You want to make sure that that everything's well. Um, but I and at any point, sorry, did you uh, did you ask your guide to pretend to be a complete psychopath in order that you could uh, kind of experience what it would be like to the victim in that situation? You know, I, I did, but he wasn't willing to comply. So it was one of the great <laughs> it was one of the great uh, social problems I had on the trip. That was extra. That cost extra. It did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That'll cost you more. But it was really fun. I mean, and that's part of the thing is, you know, one of the things I really pride myself on is my research. Like, in, you know, I've gone up in stunt airplanes. I've gone undercover in a mind control cults. I've snuck onto demolition ranges with Navy SEALs to blow up cars if I have an explosion in the book. I really want to see and experience everything firsthand because I hold it to be my job to take the reader to really have a front row seat um, on whatever adventure I'm bringing them on. And I think that sometimes those small telling details that you can pop to the surface are the ones that really can convince a reader that something is real. And that's sure. where that's where you start to get under their skin, um, where they can't sleep and they're up late at night and yeah. you know, they can't put a book down. And that's always my aim is to is to have my readers be exhausted. That segues quite nicely into my next question actually, because I wanted to ask you in terms of location, do you consider the location of your reader um, as you're writing? Is it important to you that you're not using terminology that they can't re- relate to? That Do you feel that you write to an international audience? Well, I think I do. I mean, I'm in 23 languages. And so if I had to give thought to, you know, every language has its own embarrassing moments. Like, you know, I always have, when I'm done with a book in the U.S., there will inevitably be three or four words that need to be changed sure. from the U.S. because they mean an embarrassingly different thing here. Um, but I don't think about it. I mean, I think it's one of the benefits that I have you know, being in California and Los Angeles, as so many people see movies and TV that's based and from there, that it's not like it's some sort of, you know, Byzantine code of vocabulary that has to be unraveled. Like, you know, the, the majority of, of readers around the world are fairly pop cultural, pop culturally savvy at this point. So, you know, there's not a lot. And I think if I'm my main concern, if something's getting too obscure or detail based is more for the pace. I want I want the books to convey all the sort of gut sentiments of what the ride is I'm taking the reader on, but I don't want to show off the research either. That was Greg Hurwitz, whose new book, Tell No Lies, is out now. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. If you're listening here in the UK, grab your sunglasses and head out to enjoy the beautiful weather this bank holiday weekend. Don't forget to head to our SoundCloud page for other author readings and audiobook extracts at www soundcloud.com slash penguin dash books. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, 
You can email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find us on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. You've been listening to the Penguin Podcast.